Hello and welcome to the Trips and Global on Wheels podcast hour. I'm your host, Ming Canaday. Trips and Global on Wheels is focused on sharing resources and insights into disability advocacy, fitness and health, and accessible travel. Our mission is to build a community of healthy, worldly, and informed advocates. Each week on our podcast, we interview someone with a disability or someone whose work advances the disability rights movement, both locally and internationally. Devon Palermo, welcome to the Trips and Global on Wheels podcast hour. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Of course. So Devon Palermo is the Director and Adaptive Fitness Specialist for Definitive Progression Ignited. The acronym is DPI, right? Adaptive Fitness. Correct. He is the founder and principal director of DPI Adaptive Fitness. In their own words, DPI Adaptive Fitness is adaptive fitness for everyone at any level of ability. It is a safe and effective programming to improve functional strength, balance, speed, endurance, mood, and overall wellness. In addition to being a personal trainer for individuals with disabilities seeking to be fit, Devon is also the author of Disability Fitness Handbook, the Never Give Up blog, and numerous fitness, nutrition, and sports publications. Devon is said to be a leading authority on adaptive fitness for those living with or recovering from a disability. With over 15 years of experience in both fitness and rehab, he is the go-to resource for clients, therapists, and doctors looking to maximize the benefits of adaptive exercises to improve strength, balance, function, and abilities. He has worked as a strength and conditioning trainer. Devon regularly represents on adaptive fitness to local area hospitals, support groups, walk and rolls and expos welcome again devon thank you thank you again for having me of course so our first question is how did dpi adaptive fitness get started Mm, that's a good question it's it's always one that uh, everybody hits me with first so i my background is i'm a licensed physical therapist assistant as well and uh, many years I worked in the spinal cord injury unit at MedStar National Rehab Hospital. I did both inpatient and outpatient, but the majority of the time was in outpatient. During that time, I, I worked with a, um, a patient who um, we became pretty close, as you would imagine, you know, in rehab, the, the therapist and patient relationship is usually one that grows. This patient, you know, and I had developed a good relationship and um, she was coming to a point with her insurance benefits were getting ready to, to lapse. And with, with so much potential for outcomes uh, to be left on the table, I, I didn't want that to happen. So we talked about it and decided that I would come to her house a couple of times a week just to exercise and keep her strong. And we did that, did it for three or four months. And by the time her insurance uh, benefits kicked back in, uh, the evaluating therapist, was expecting to see someone who had regressed in that short time period. But instead, she found that this woman had not, had increased strength, had increased endurance, and was now able to work on things that before in therapy they were not able to. She was a, a quadriplegic woman, and so this, this showed great benefit to her, her function, her ability to, to you know, do things as independent as possible. And soon word caught on, and, and I started getting calls and would moonlight after working a full day in the clinic, I would moonlight as 
the trainer. And fast forward to today, I stopped working in the therapy clinic and, and uh, got a team built around. We got a location and now we have, um, I'm happy to say, a, a fully accessible adaptive gym uh, where we see everyone at every level of ability. That's awesome. That's awesome. So what skills do you think does one need to create a useful adaptive fitness program for people with disabilities? Just because there are so many variety of disabilities out there for me, you know, I contracted polio when I was a toddler. And so that's why I use a manual wheelchair, but you know, there's people with spinal cord injuries and uh, you, you are very familiar with the variety of disabilities that are out there that causes one to have a mobility disability. So I would say the biggest thing is, and, and this is what I preach all the time, I think that adaptive fitness is more than just adapting fitness to someone. So it's more than just someone coming in and, and you recognize that they may be doing things at a wheelchair level and then you trying to adapt exercise. It's way more than that. I feel like in order to, to be able to provide safe, effective programming, which is something that myself and my team really pride ourselves on, you have to know about that individual, about their diagnosis, about the precautions that are in place, the research behind exercise. As I'm sure you well know, many doctors have probably told you that exercise is probably something that you should not do. Living living with, with polio, post-polio, traditionally, everybody would say, don't exercise. You know, you shouldn't be exercising. But now that there's more research coming out, they're, they're starting to say, yeah, you should exercise because you still have to do your normal activities of daily living, but you know, you don't need to be go hitting it as intensely as possible. So I think understanding the different precautions, restrictions, and, and knowing that fully before working with someone. And again, not just adapting it to someone at their current level that you see them in, but really understanding that background plays a big role in, in developing and providing a safe, effective programming. I'm glad you touched on that, on the polio aspect and not overexerting yourself or even exerting yourself. I, doctors have told me different things. One of the latest uh, news that I have been given is to not overexert myself. And so I want, can, can you go into more detail on that? Especially that fine balance between, you know, doing moderate exercise, but not overexerting yourself, mm -hmm. that balance. Absolutely. I think, you know, depending on the mindset of the individual, if you have someone that is, you know, very gung-ho, like, let's do this, they may have the mentality of, we have to push, we have to push, we have to go, we have to do this. When you have a medical limitation in place, the medical limitation is not put there to hinder what you're trying to accomplish. It's put there to make sure that you're doing things safely. So um, for individuals living with MS, very similar to, to what you've been told as, as someone living with post-polio, um, you know, you need to, you want to do things, but you don't want to overexert yourself because what you can do is cause a remission or cause, you know, in some cases they say irreversible damage. When I say fitness, like for yourself or for an uh, individual living with MS, let's say that mobility is a big need. You want to be as independent as possible in the home. There are exercises that can help you be as independent as possible at home, and it mimics those movements. But that doesn't mean that you should go and, and try to do a 20-minute, you know, um, intense workout where you're dripping in sweat. That's, that's not at all what it means. It means, like, understanding the limitations and doing things accordingly. Yes, thank you. Very informative. Moving on to, like, the core of what you do now, fitness. What do you think is the key to staying fit for 
people with disabilities that is different from the regular able-bodied population? What are some things you really have to look out for that you wouldn't have to be as a normal, regular personal trainer? I think all of us need mobility. Like us as human beings, as a species, like our bodies were designed to move. And so, you know, I think that the biggest thing is just finding a way to safely do that. I, again, I'm going to go back to that, that question that you asked earlier. Like I think for myself as a trainer and any other trainer that's looking to work with this population, it's, it's not just doing things quickly and putting it together and seeing what works. Like I feel like really doing the research and understanding the background and knowing, you know, what you should be doing, what to work on and, and how to progress someone that's living with a disability is, is how you would uh, design a good program for, for someone like that. I think the other thing is, and I mention this a lot whenever I do healthcare talks or, or courses is um, I'm a big fan of, of improving what's called the therapist trainer model. So if you're working with, if you yourself are working with a PT and, and the PT knows that you're going to start coming to see me, then I want myself and that PT to converse and know exactly what you're doing and maybe me be a supplement to what you're doing in therapy and vice versa. So that way you have better potential for outcomes. I'm personally curious, what kinds of disabilities do your clients have normally and how does that determine the type of exercises that you, know, you choose for them or they choose for themselves? Good question. I think the majority of the population that we see come in here for one-on-ones are stroke survivors, uh, spinal cord injury, and then we do have some cerebral palsy and spina bifida that come in regularly for one-on-ones. Let's start with like spinal cord injury and stroke. Like for for those individuals, we're talking about you know trying to improve some some uh, neurological b- benefit from exercise. Um, if they have some movement, then it's about us jumping on that movement and trying to uh, to get them to utilize as many neurons from their brain to make that connection to the muscles to improve that area. So if you're talking about a stroke survivor with right hemiparesis, you know, we're working really hard on them using that right side to strengthen it. It's a term called neuroplasticity. It's where, you know, you repeatedly do functional task specific movements so that that person is able to, you know, using the brain rewire and and find new ways to connect and make that movement happen. I'm not saying that it's, it's the answer, but it's, there's definitely a lot of research, a ton of research behind the effects of neuroplastic change and specifically high volume exercise training for your stroke survivors and your spinal cord. Now, for anyone else, let's say you're not looking at neural recovery, we have a lot of people that come in that are 30, 40 years post spinal cord injury or like, as I mentioned before, spinal bifida, cerebral palsy, and um, you know they've been in the chair for the majority of their life. In this case, then it's more looking at them as an individual and what they can benefit from to decrease pain or the risk of injury. So if someone's a manual wheelchair user and they're pushing you know, eight hours or more uh, out of the day because that's how they get around, then I'm gonna look at posture, at trunk stability, at uh, you know, strength and musculature in the back to help with you know, improving their posture and, and being able to, um, to correct. So it, it really depends on the individual and what they're coming in for, for the most part, we, we can do maintenance and wellness or neural recovery exercises. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. So what challenges have you faced training people with disabilities that you haven't really encountered with able-bodied people, things that you have to be extra careful about? 
I think again, certain individuals, the restrictions that are involved that I feel like you should know about. I don't want to, I don't want to ever put anyone at risk, especially if, um, especially someone who already has something going on. If, if you're living with a disability, you know, I don't want to cause any extra injuries or, or do anything that could potentially be harmful to you. So, you know, I'll use specific examples. Those individuals living with MS, I make sure to, to give them a good workout, but without pushing them to the point where of exhaustion to where, you know, they could possibly have an exacerbation and be laid out for months for those individuals, you know, like um, spina bifida, you know, I, we got to watch out. They're allergic to latex and it can be, it can be fatal. So making sure that I'm double checking with them. I'm, I'm educating the staff, letting them know, you know, keep, keep all the latex products away, no balloon games or anything like that. So it's knowing those, those little things in, in there to make sure that you're doing things safely. Uh, another one is, is quadriplegics. You know, those individuals living with quadriplegics at the T6 level or above, they cannot regulate their blood pressure a certain way. So they can, they can get what's called um, dysreflexic which is also a life-threatening medical emergency. So understanding those, those limitations and just being aware, I wouldn't say limitations, but just being aware of certain medical conditions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I think this next question, we kind of covered it, which is exercising and how to do it in moderation. But I guess we were talking about polio earlier. Can you speak more generally on uh, people with certain disabilities, whatever they may be, and needing to worry about uh, being too active, but also needing to be somewhat active? Does exercising in moderation mean different things to different individuals depending on their disability? Needing to worry about uh, being too active, but also needing to be somewhat active? Does exercising in moderation mean different things to different individuals depending on their disability? If yes, give us vivid examples of, of that. So, you know, I just, I, I just had a session with a woman who has uh, post-polio. And um, the biggest thing that we're working on is, you know, she works, she works full-time. She has to, to ambulate to get from the parking job parking lot of her job to the office. Um, so we're working on endurance for walking so she doesn't have to take lots of rest breaks. That doesn't mean that we're pushing it, but we're working on trying to improve her endurance with that, whether that be standing endurance exercises where she just has to maintain standing position while doing something else. Again, I'll go back to the balloon, me tossing a balloon while she's maintaining standing endurance. That's a great way to work on her ability to maintain balance and posture and endurance for the walking activity. I, I try to do things again. I, I check in on her, make sure that, you know, she's doing all right. If she needs a rest break, then we're taking rest breaks for as long as she needs. But for the most part, I'm trying to do movements that simulate or are similar to what she has to do on her day to day so that she's getting better at it. So that would be my best example for, you know, that, that population. I would say, um, let's go back to the, the example of someone living with MS. You know, again, you don't want to overexert, but they still got to go to the bathroom. They still got to get into bed, get out of the car, walk around the mall. So again, mimicking uh, movements and exercises that will help those 
those movements. So we have a mat here. I'll have you lay down on the mat and then stand back up nice and tall. And we'll do that for sets and reps according to their fatigue level because they have to use those muscles to rotate, turn, sit up, and stand up to, to do what they're doing. So that's how I would do things in moderation. It, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're, you know, using uh, dumbbell weights or, or, or the machines here. It could just mean that we're simply taking a very functional thing that they do at home alone and making it an exercise. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Aside from DPI adaptive fitness, who are some other leading authorities in the sphere of adaptive fitness, either domestically here in the U.S. or internationally that you would like to or are currently working with or have worked with in the past? What did you like about how these individuals, companies, and or organizations uh, approached adaptive fitness? So I feel like adaptive fitness opportunities are on the rise. It's still, it's still on the fence, like whether or not people are, are doing it the way that we've discussed, you know, understanding the precautions and, and limitations or just adapting exercise. So I feel like with that being said, there's a lot of ad uh, adaptive fitness opportunities on the rise. Um, but the ones that I feel like are doing it the right way and the safe way are places like uh, the National Council for Health and Physical Disability, NICPAD, the Lakeshore Foundation, Shepherd, Shepherd Center, which is a rehab hospital, has an exercise program, as, as does Rehabilitation Institute of Chicago. All of these places are therapy clinics that recognize the need of transitioning into you know, traditional exercise. And so what they've done is they've had their PTs guide the trainers there to understand and know how and what limitations. Um, also, there's, a, there's a, a great center called the Ability 360 Center in Phoenix, Arizona. And um, that it's a huge, all-inclusive facility uh, where, again, they, they have that training staff that has that background and have been trained but they also are doing things on a much larger scale. Quad rugby courts, adapted swimming pools, adapted all-inclusive cardio fitness classes. Um, so there are places like that. So I feel like those, those are the places that I, you know, I would love to work more with, that I would love to you know, continue to learn from or, or educate as well, um, because I feel like they, they have that mindset of making sure that the programming is safe. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. I'm glad there's a, there's a small community out there, at least in the field of adaptive fitness. So the next few questions touch more on fitness, but also uh, disability advocacy. So is it difficult to make a mainstream, quote unquote, regular or normal gym uh, like LA Fitness, any of the big ones, Gold's? Vita, Equinox, into an accessible gym, an, an adaptive gym? where people of various mobility disabilities or other kinds of disabilities altogether could use it as well? I don't think that it's difficult. I think that it's just a matter of them wanting to do it and, uh, and, and educating their staff on how to do it. You know, I, I used to say all the time that uh, making a gym accessible is more than just putting an accessible door button and, and having that be the, the way that people get in. It's gotta be from accessible equipment to knowledgeable trainers. And I feel like the push, as I mentioned, there's a rise in adaptive fitness opportunities, but there's still not enough. And um, there's a lot of different places. Uh, the name escapes me now, but I worked recently with uh, an organization that's trying hard to make all gyms be as, a, as inclusive as possible. 
you know, right now I know that I know that Planet Fitness has, um, I think, at all of their locations, they have a SciFit upper body ergometer that is wheelchair accessible. But that's really the only piece of equipment. So, um, so I think that um, again, it goes back to them wanting to whether whether or not it, it's within their budget, whether or not it's the demographic that they want to serve. But um, in order to be all inclusive, it needs to be more than just an accessible door button. It needs to have the equipment and the, the proper knowledgeable staff as well to go with it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What would be your top recommendations or next steps for these mainstream gyms to make it adaptive or accessible to all? That's a tough question because there's a lot there's a lot that goes involved with it, especially when you talk about a big chain like that, um, from spacing of the equipment to the equipment itself. Uh, to the locker rooms, you know, all that, all that good stuff. I mean, if you talk about the environment alone, there's certain things that they need to hit in terms of accessibility. A lot of these big uh, fitness chains are on second floors of, of offices or buildings. So elevator access, you know, what if the elevator breaks down, that kind of thing. If, if you're not talking about the environment, then it goes back to them bringing on someone who's knowledgeable or certified as an adaptive trainer to at least mentor the other trainers in the staff. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, there's definitely, even though, you know, it's not impossible, there, there are measures that need to be taken to make it accessible. So as you are probably familiar with, around 70% of the U.S. population, the disabled population, is unemployed. So how do you ensure that your fitness programs are affordable to as many people as possible, as many people with disabilities? And I know you touched on this already, but just to make it not only at MedStar, because that's in Washington, D.C., right? But say if you are looking to go nationwide on it or just recommendations for making adaptive fitness more accessible to people with disabilities all over the country. Hmm. I think um, obviously grant writing, you know, DPI is not a nonprofit, we're a for-profit. With that being said, all of our profit goes right back into making this gym as, as accessible and as, as good as possible for the population we work with. But I think it goes back to establishing a nonprofit arm, which is something that we're in the works for doing for 2020, so that we can provide scholarships to those individuals that want more than just coming into a free program. I think that's that's where it starts and that's where it can start for many other places as well is to is to develop some kind of nonprofit arm so that you can take in donations so that you can fund at least the one-on-one -on -one sessions that would be the one start in addition to that you know you mentioned we, we do the programming in dc where it's no cost but through that grant they also have several programming options here at our site that's no cost so we usually factor all that in. We do that. Our, our small group classes are nominally priced, so it's $20 per class, which is something where if you feel like, I, I tell a lot of people whenever they come in and do an assessment, like if they want to see me three times a week, I usually push them away from that and I say, look, let's do one time a week, one-on-one. -on -one. You can come to the free class on Saturdays and you can come to the $20 classes during the week. That's three days a week of you coming in and getting some good programming. If you want to do more from there, then then that's different. But but I feel like having the different options for people works well. One of the other things that we do is we have a um, a program where an individual pays a monthly fee and they have unlimited access to the gym with a caregiver. So they can come in whenever they want as long as our, our hours were open and they can utilize all the equipment. We'll show them how to use it the first time 
and their caregiver comes with them, they exercise for, you know, $50 a month, which is, uh, I feel like a, a, a steal with all of the adaptive equipment that we have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I certainly understand that an organization, you know, needs to make money to run and be sustainable in the long term, you know, running a startup company myself. So have you thought about going into the future, partnering with more nonprofits and making it scaling up, but also making sure that the, the affordability issue is taken care of in the long term? I think, um, you know, we've tried that. I think having the relationship that we do with MedStar has been great because we've been able to, to grow their program and ours at the same time. We've worked with other facilities like the Stroke Comeback Center and Catalyst Adaptive Sports, which are both nonprofits as well. But I think that, uh, you know, it goes back to what you said. You know, if it's a business and in order to sustain, we need to be able to provide a certain amount of programming where we have those the needs that we need to have for our facilities met. So because of that, I think partnering with other nonprofits hasn't been effective in the long term, aside from ours with MedStar. So that's where I feel like us doing a, a nonprofit arm of DPI will be um, will be that much more beneficial for the community that we serve because we'll be able to offer more programming for less mm -hmm. cost or no cost. Yeah. Mm -hmm. For scaling up, where do you see yourself in 20 years, say? So I mentioned Ability360. That's that's a, a huge facility and it's something that, you know, I would I would love to, to have or be a part of. But I get asked this question a lot. I get asked about franchising and things like that. And I really feel like uh, when you franchise, when you scale, when you grow too big, you lose a lot of what makes this organization to what people tell me, a great organization. So I wanna focus on, on myself and my trainers being the absolute best at what we do. I wanna focus on being able to provide the, the best programming that we can and, and be known as a facility to come to when you're in the DMV. Other than that, I'm, I'm uh, you know, scalable in terms of, you know, like I said, the nonprofit arm in terms of other programming that we do, but in terms of, of growth and growing, I'm not looking to be like this big organization that has several sites everywhere. I'd rather focus on being the best that we are at this site here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maintaining quality certainly is a challenge when you're scaling up. So I understand that you are a leading authority on adaptive fitness. So do you think does this authority come from your educational and professional training or your personal experiences with either, you know, at a family friendship level or with your clients. So in order to become a leading authority in adaptive fitness, do you need to have personal experience or can the professional certifications education cover it? That's a good question. I think that um, I think that it's combined, everything that you mentioned. I think that having the professional experience in the setting that I was able to grow and learn from other great therapists while, as I was a trainer definitely made me the therapist that I was. And I think uh, taking that and applying it to the population and fitness setting, when really there was nothing else going on at the time, this is back in 2005, there was really no other fitness for individuals living with, with disabilities. I feel like pairing that and then um, discussing it, discussing the growth, discussing the ideas that I had with colleagues, therapists, doctors, I think that that kind of put me in there and established me as, as that resource. And now that I go and I, I present regularly to different hospitals and healthcare systems, you know, whenever I'm speaking, they all nod their heads when it comes to the point where I say, 
when you discharge your patient, where do they go after therapy? You know, because most people, that's it. You know, they don't know how to exercise in the gym or, or they don't know where to go. We're that person for them. We're that person so that the therapists know they can refer to us and know that they're in good hands. All of that put together is what I feel like, not just myself, the team, this company, as, as an authority in adaptive fitness. So, so it seems like you're more in-person, person-to-person training, physical contact. Have you thought of creating a virtual platform for people with disabilities with virtual fitness programs? I, you know, I've been asked that question before, and I've, I've put some uh, classes, where, you know, our, our adaptive boxing class is pretty popular, and I've put some of the classes, portions of it on YouTube, and people tell me that they do it all the time, or they do, they get a good workout from it. Um, it's something that I'm not opposed to doing, but I feel like where my, where my energy for 2020, where that's going to go is, you know, I, I'm, I'm partnering currently with um, an organization called the Medical Fitness Network. And, and that network is exactly what you and I have been talking about. It's making sure that there are personal fitness professionals that have that knowledge, that have that background, that have that continuing education to do what we say we're doing. So I'm going to be partnering with them in providing a, um, an online module and training for trainers to take to learn how to work with the population so that we get more trainers out there that know how to safely and effectively design programming. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I think having a, especially not not only for a business standpoint of scaling up, but just filling that void and that need, um, perhaps a virtual platform would be useful so that you can reach reach more people around the U.S. and perhaps even, you know, outside of the U.S. internationally. Agreed. Because there aren't very many people who do, that I know of at least, that do adaptive fitness and have so much experience in the field. Yeah, definitely, definitely something to work on towards uh, in the future. I think that we definitely have the content for it. We definitely have the population to, to do an online class. It would just be putting all those pieces of the puzzle together. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And for um, any new members going into adaptive fitness, say someone who doesn't have a disability like yourself or friends or family necessarily, and have those personal relationships, what are your recommendations for, for people who are trying to get into the field and trying to really make a meaningful service for people with disabilities? I would say to not get caught up with what looks cool. I would say to, um, you know, to focus more on, on, on the education from quality organizations that have been doing this. So the American College of Sports Medicine has a inclusive fitness trainer certification. That would be a start. Um, I mentioned before, the National Council on Health and Physical Disability has a, a library of programming for trainers to learn from. As I mentioned also just a little while ago, the Medical Fitness Network is going to be a, a giant resource for any trainer, any potential trainer to get the education on not just adaptive fitness, but on diabetes training, on pregnancy training, on, you know, there, there's just a variety of genetics training. There's a variety of, of uh, healthcare experts and fitness experts that are coming together and putting this information out there. So, um, so that, again, you can separate between working with those individuals that really do know and have that background and those that are just modifying and adapting to adapt. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So for regular personal trainers who do not have any experience 
with any sorts of disabilities and they want to go into adaptive fitness or at least do an integrated system where they have able-bodied uh, clients and individuals with disabilities, is it astronomically difficult? Do they have to do extra training, certifications, personal one-on-one uh, -on -one experiences? Do they really have to have those things? Or can they go for it and accumulate the experience? As they go. I guess that goes back to the individual. Like if you were working with that trainer, I'm sure you would want somebody that that understands and knows, you know, the background. Um, so what I'll tell you what we do here. I usually have people that are interested in, in, in being uh, adaptive trainers, whether they're already a trainer or not. I have them come on board as an intern. Uh, most of the time it's a eight month internship. That way they're hands-on involved, understanding, learning how to safeguard, learning how to transfer, learning, um, you know, what population you can do what with. And then from there, taking the certification exam as i mentioned through the american college of sports medicine or the international sports sciences association also has a uh, adaptive fitness certification now getting that certification doesn't mean that you're good to go that just means that you've scratched the surface on understanding what that certification means and what it entails i think continuing to mentor i'm big on mentorship because that's how i learned everything mentored underneath you know more experienced therapists more experienced trainers and that's how you get that knowledge base that you can share and pass along and, and get your experience your personal experience from so I would say that I, I would say you know if you're interested in in learning or working in this population go shadow at a physical therapy clinic a rehab clinic where you're, they're working with this population volunteer shadow learn as much as you can from that experience take those certification exams, continue to mentor, find somebody to mentor under, and then start building up your clientele. Uh, continuing education is key as well, you know, make sure that you're constantly learning. Like I think um, for my certifications, technically I can take any certification to, uh, to meet my requirements. So I can take, um, you know, kettlebell training or exercise ball training or, you know, TRX training to, to satisfy my needs as an adaptive fitness trainer, but I don't do that. I purposely search for courses that are designed for stroke, spinal cord injury, cerebral palsy, spinal bifida, um, neurological, and then and that's where I get my my training from. Do you have to have a strong medical background as well as a strong and detailed understanding of specific dis disabilities out there in order to go into adaptive fitness? Or can you learn as you go, as we were talking earlier? Yeah, no, I don't think you need to. It, it's very helpful. And the majority of the trainers on our staff have that background, but it's not needed. I think that as long as you're open and willing to learn and learn, you know, how to do things the safe way, you can definitely, you know, as I mentioned before, shadow, pick up from, you know, the more experienced trainers, therapists, um, take your certification exams and, and start to build your own personal experience. I think the worst thing that you can do is just um, you know, try to learn on the fly on your own without understanding the, the needs. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you're really emphasizing on going through a program and being mentored in an apprenticeship type of, type of thing? Yeah. Um, Devon, thank you so much. That's all the questions for now, and we really appreciate you. Thank you. Same to you. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it very much. I only know what it's like in America 
shutting doors I don't think that's right Thanks for listening to another Trips and Global on Wheels podcast hour. Look for us on Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook where I post pictures of my travels, share videos of my fitness journey, and keep you updated on the latest wheelchair accessory must-haves. Tell others about our program. The more we can raise awareness about these issues, the stronger we can get as a community. At Trips and Global on Wheels, we aim to build a community of healthy, worldly and informed individuals with disabilities and disability advocates that means we want to hear from you our listeners send us an email at tgow podcast at gmail.com let us know about your favorite destinations for accessible travel how do you stay fit to avoid chronic injuries what language do you prefer to describe your identity as someone with a disability we want to provide a platform for people to share and learn from each other. So send us your stories. If you have suggestions for future guests that you would like to hear on our podcast series, please leave them in the Contact Us section of our website or post them on our Facebook page. Thanks again for listening. Bye-bye.